Okay, uh, we're going to get going first. Um, thank you for coming to the UA Campus Bookstore. I'm Rachel Epstein, the event coordinator, and um, I'm very much looking forward to this event. Uh, first, um, we have some light refreshments for you. You can take whatever is at the table, coffee, tea, and some cookies. It's Friday, so there's free parking at UAA. You didn't have to pay for parking, which is a good thing. Um, this event is being recorded, and it will be in iTunes um, Monday, and you can find it by searching UA Campus Bookstore. And it will um, probably be in um, the uh, guest speaker's Expanding Minds uh, collection, or you can find it by searching um, our guest author, uh, our guest speaker's names, um, Rabbi, Rabbi, Rabbi uh, Michael Alboth or uh, Robert Diamante. <laughs> um, okay, this event. Um, it's called Biblical Perspectives. Um, Rabbi Michael Abloth and Robert Diamante present their research on the Exodus from Egypt and the Israelite art narrative. Um, Rabbi Michael Abloth will discuss his book, The Exodus Itinerary Sites, their locations from the perspective of the biblical sources. Um, a copy is here you can look at after the uh, event and investigates the biblical account for the path of the Exodus from Egypt. Um, after his presentation, uh, artist and scholar Robert Diamante discusses his article, The State of the Ark, um, was published in Adornment, the magazine of jewelry and related arts. Um, a copy of the article is on the round table. You can take a look at it if you like. And um, the composition of the Israeli Israelite Ark will also be discussed. So we'll have time for a uh, questions or discussion after their presentations. Um, I thank you very much for coming, and I'd like to welcome Rabbi Albach. Thank you. Can you hear me already? This is the first time I've ever done PowerPoint. So this could be horrible, but hopefully not. Um, I, uh, for those of you who don't know me, I was ordained at the in College in 1978 and ordained as a reform rabbi and always had wanted to go back and get a doctor. And when I was at Hebrew Union College, I learned a process of interpreting the biblical text, which is based in various critical methods that, that have been okay, that have been developed over the last couple centuries. And and I developed an interest in the Exodus when I was back in grad school in 1997 or so, or eight, <clears throat> and that sort of is an this whole process of, of what I'm going through right now is an introduction into the whole topic. So I'm just going to start with it because it was something that I had always been struck by the relationship between the Exodus and the archaeological evidence that supports it. And did this work? Does that work? Mm -hmm. Now you see two tiny little words, right? Yeah. They were intentionally tiny. Okay, so <clears throat> the basic idea was that if you take all the archaeology and the material evidence and you add those together for what has been suggested as support for the Exodus and the slavery, you get nothing. You have very, very little. You could never, ever reproduce the biblical story. It just won't happen because that evidence is so, so circumstantial 
that can't support, you'd have to read the story into the evidence to, to give it some kind of meaning. But on the other hand, if you take the biblical text and you remove all the Exodus references that are in the biblical text, number one, if you take Moses out, because that's where he comes in, that eliminates four-fifths of the Torah. Okay, if you take, and if you really look then at the, at the notations that are made in Genesis in particular, that are references to the relationship between what I'm going to discuss here, then it pretty much takes out the, the last 15 chapters of the book of Genesis completely. <clears throat> especially the story of Judah and Tamar, especially the blessing of Jacob in Genesis 49. And if you take out the Exodus allusions and references that are in the rest of the biblical text, you reduce the biblical text to an empty shell. So there's something going on with that story that renders the text itself critically important that cannot be supported by the archaeological evidence. So we're basically looking at, what I was looking at, was ultimately a literary analysis. Because that's what it is, a story. And I didn't really connect with what I wanted to do for my dissertation until I took a seminar on the history of Israel and Judah. And we were talking about the Exodus and looking at Exodus chapter 1, just chapter 1. And my mind focused, I tended to do this in, in the, these classes sometimes, my mind focused on at least three questions, at least three questions that I wanted to investigate the very next day. One <clears throat> was, what is the reason for the slavery? And why does it make absolutely no sense? If you think, if you know the reason for the slavery, which you're about to find out, um, it's the notion of the Israelite population is increasing, and Pharaoh, or the king, is so worried about this that he imposes a slavery on the people. And then he wants to eliminate the males from the population, because that then will reduce the population and, and cause the population that he needs to be slaves to go down, which ruins his slave industry. And so it doesn't make any sense. He's not the wisest guy on the block, even though, even though in the chapter he says, let us use our wisdom in dealing with this. Okay, so there's something that the author is trying to tell us. This question about the difference, why the males has confused religious traditions, religious commentaries for 2,000 years, and it has bothered scholars in the last couple hundred years or more trying to figure out why this is set up this way. And, and what I thought was that maybe I could discover that if I paid enough attention to it. Second thing is, what type of slavery is it? It is what is called mas, and it's only used once in reference to the Egyptian slavery throughout the entire biblical text. It is only used once, and where the, the taskmasters are called sare misim. Misim is the plural form of, in Hebrew of mas, which is what is called a corvée slavery. The slavery that it was was very, very common in the ancient Near East. If a king wanted to build roads, he'd draft people. He'd draft men, generally, out of the population, and they would serve for one week out of the year, for maybe three or four years, they'd build the roads. They'd go off to war, he'd draft in a certain population, 
percentage of the population to go off to war. And one of the things I'll repeat a little bit later, one of the problems with this is, number one, like I said, it's the only time that that word is used in reference to the Egyptian slavery. And number two, it is something that was only used in the biblical text by Solomon, by King Solomon. And we'll talk about that. So the question was, why is this used only once? We'll get to that. And then, what was built by the Israelites during their slavery? What they build are what are called Aray Miskanot, which are translated as, as store cities. The, um, they are Pitom and Ramses, which are understood as Pitom, Piatum, the, the temple, the house of the god, sun god, and it's, he's building a temple, and P. Ramses, he's building a palace. So that's what Pharaoh is doing. He's using the Israelites not to build store cities, but to build a temple and a palace. And Aramis Kanot can be translated in a very different way, which we'll get to. So I went and found on the next day, I started looking into this stuff. I found some references that as I looked, I mean, what I found with scholars is they make references to some kind of relationship between the story of Moses and the story of Solomon. Because Solomon, if you don't remember, enslaved the Israelites to build the temple and the palace in Jerusalem. That's all in 1 Kings. And as I started looking at this, I found that these two stories, the story of Moses and Pharaoh and the story of Solomon and Jeroboam, Jeroboam was an Israelite hero who later would become when Israel broke off from Judah and formed the northern kingdom, he became the king of Israel. And, but the two stories of Moses and Pharaoh and Jeroboam and Solomon are for all intents and purposes identical. One is in the book of Exodus, the other one's in the book of 1 Kings. And at that point, I was hooked because the two stories are not accidentally identical. There are, one of the things that's known in literature is that if there are reversals in, from one story to the other, then that means there's an intentional connection being made between these two stories. And there are reversals that indicate that there is a connection between them. So these are not accidentally identical stories. One of them was written before the other. And the, the problem is, <clears throat> in determining which one came, fir came first, now, as an aside, and this is an important thing to realize, there is a huge, I'm not borrowing that word from anyone in particular, but there is a huge presupposition that Egypt must be the physical source of the Exodus. And this presupposition goes back into the biblical text. And you might say, I, I said when I saw it, when I was researching this, I said, whoa, wait a minute. Um, of course there's going to be a presupposition. They're writing the story. But there is evidence from one of the source, sources, the priestly source, that he has a presupposition that Egypt is the source of the Exodus, even though his, what he presents as geographical evidence for various events indicates the opposite. So he's, presupp he's imposing his presupposition onto the story. And... But even with the weakest circumstantial evidence 
to support the slavery in Exodus, that presupposition is unwarranted. And if you're going to try to do, this is what my conversation I have with myself, if I'm going to try to do some kind of, of, of and with biblical text, objective interpretation of what's going on, I needed to really, really start from scratch and say, I cannot make an assumption that either story came first. I have to try to figure out which one came first. And, and I do have, I'm fortunate enough that I have a background in science. My bachelor's degree was in physiology, and I had a couple years in grad school. So I have enough of a background in science that I can hopefully, hopefully control that, that weird urge that um, comes around. But anyway, I was hooked. I really was. And what resulted from my research was an article which was called, and this is why I knew the translation of that word, of gods and kings whence the exodus. So in case you're wondering what whence means, that I have there means from where. And, um, and part of that was a geographical analysis. It became my dissertation. I expanded it out, and it became my dissertation. And that's the book that I, that I ended up writing. But in order to determine whether Moses and Pharaoh or Jeroboam and Solomon were the base narrative, I decided to investigate two aspects of the story. One was the first chapter of Exodus, the book of Exodus, and the second one is the itinerary sites. And these are intimately linked to each other. They may not seem to be, but they are intimately linked to each other. And chapter one is, is something that I, I really, really was surprised when I started looking at it because it showed some things that were fairly remarkable. The itinerary sites were interesting because I had to assume certain things. And, well, not assume certain things. I had to, I had to write a hypothesis, which was interesting because you don't see a lot of hypotheses in biblical work. It, and so I said, when I got to the itinerary sites, I said, if the biblical authors are portraying the Exodus itinerary sites in anything they write, they are going to be consistent with where they locate them. That was the hypothesis. And I knew that as I was researching it, it could fall apart at any day. I could walk in and find 12 sites that were totally mis misdirected all over the place. And what I, what I found, as I'll show you later, is that they were consistent through 70 sites down to one. One mist, and it was a site that was called Tower Migdol, which you would name anything, which is a spying place or a, a spot on a border. But every other site that they identified as being close to anything else, they were consistent, absolutely consistent with it, which was really fun to find. But anyway, chapter one, this is slide five, yes, chapter one <clears throat> has <clears throat> a number of, of challenging questions in it. But it, the most challenging thing that I found was that it, at least, it has at least seven references to Solomon and Jeroboam in this one chapter. And I'm not going to go through all of them. I just want to go through some that are really critical. First one, that I, the, the, the basic three questions. The reason for the slavery and the response. The reason is to increase the population. I'm going to put... <clears throat> can you read that at all? Good, okay, so I'll get to it when I want to get to it. Um, you're just going to have to trust me. <clears throat> but I can say that, but you can check it out. All you need to pull out is a Bible. Um, and this is the fun part, because all of the stuff that I dealt with is right out of the biblical text. These are literary stories, and they're 
they're writing about apparently the same thing. So the reason for the slavery is the increased population. The solution is to kill off the males, which I mentioned. Why kill off the males? Why choose the males? If you want to reduce the population, you kill off the females because they're the ones that carry the babies. And, and it's just a, a logical thing. But this king wants to kill off the males. And the question then is, <clears throat> it's not a question, but number one, he's not very wise. And number two, why does he do that? There has to be a reason why he insists on picking the males. There's, it's re-emphasized. Population, if, oh, well, I could use this later. You see the blued-in stuff? I'll get to that. But that, those lines, those sentences, those verses that those blue things are in, represent the times, represent something else, but it also represents the times that a reference to the population increasing among the Israelites is mentioned. You take those out, you got no slavery. There's no reason for it. There's no response to it. All you've got is nothing. So those verses are very important. And those seven blued-in parts are very important as well. Now, the type of... Let me go back. Whoops, wrong way. The type of slavery, as I mentioned, is corvée. This drafting type of slavery is very, very important in the ancient Near East. The term mas, as I mentioned, is, rep, is used at least 20 times in the biblical text. As I said, only here in the Exodus story, but the majority of the references to mas are used in reference to Solomon enslaving the Israelites. He did that, and what he built were Arei Miskanot, these store cities. And when Mas is used, it's used in Babylonia, the Egyptians used it, the Hittites used it, the Judeans used it, and when it is used, like I said, you, they basically draft a male into service for a certain amount of time per year. And when that, in that slavery goes to more than three months out of the year, the society rebels against the king. Well, Solomon enslaved the Israelite population for four months out of each year for 40 years. Even after he had finished building the temple and palace, his lovely son Rehoboam, who is a real gem, you should read about him in the biblical text, he continued the slavery. And on at least what's described in the book of Kings, on these three occasions, there is a rebellion against Solomon. The third time it's successful, and it's led by Jeroboam. Now, the places that are built, the um, Pitom and Ramses, this is a temple and a palace. As I mentioned, he's the one that built Arabi's canal, Solomon is. I've read some, some references within Egyptian literature or Egyptian studies that indicate that the Egyptians did not build store cities. I don't know if that's true, um, but it doesn't matter. Within the biblical text, the one who's building store cities is King Solomon, or building Aramis Kanot. The difficulty with this is that Aramis Kanot can mean something else. There's a Hebrew word, sakana, which means danger. Aramis Kanot can easily mean cities of danger. And if Solomon is building cities of danger, someone is making a comment about that in the biblical text. And they're not, it's not necessarily a really positive comment as well. 
Now, one thing that I think I should explain very quickly. Both of these stories, I mentioned before that both stories are, are very identical. In both stories, you have a king who imposes a slavery on the Israelite population. He's not a popular king. The people rebel against him, and a hero rebels against the king, and the king seeks his life, so he flees. And this is going to sound very much like Moses. He flees from the presence of the king, and when he's away seeking refuge, he meets a guy, marries his daughter. He meets the leader of a community, marries his daughter. They have a child, and this is a reversal. In the Jeroboam story, the child dies. In the Moses story, the child lives, which is an indication of which one came first. And then when the, when the king dies, the hero asks permission from the leader to go back to his country, Excuse me, and he gives him permission. So how long is the slavery? Slavery is one generation. The Exodus is the second generation. And that's how both stories read. There's more to it that brings them in even a closer contact with each other. But these are two very, very, very close stories. Um, now, if we go back to the reason for the slavery, it's very important. That's why I'm going to put up this slide again. The increasing population of the Israelites is the backbone of the slavery. It's the reason for the slavery. It's why Pharaoh responds by killing the males. You take the story apart by taking the increasing population out of it. It disappears. But what you have going on here is a play on two words. And the use of the number seven in biblical text is important. It wasn't a, it wasn't a magic number. It was just an important number. And, for example, the birth of Isaac uses the verb to laugh seven times. In the creation story in Genesis 1, the verb bara is used seven times. And it's used in particular ways. In this case, you have two words, am, which is people, and it's referencing the Israelites, and rabah, which is to increase. And the, you count down, six, you get to the sixth and seventh times, down at the bottom there, the Hebrew is Vayirev Ha'am. Jeroboam's name is Yerov Am. This is a reference to Jeroboam in the story. A play on those two roots, those two words, all the way down to where his name is mentioned in the last two times, the sixth and seventh time. You take Jeroboam out of the story, you've got nothing. So the question is, that to me was convincing enough that there's something else going on in the Exodus story. But I wanted to, to make sure that I wasn't misreading something or that there's something maybe, maybe different from that. And what I ended up looking at was the, the geographical sites, the itinerary sites, and how the authors of the text refer to those places. If you take a look at the traditional way that the biblical text is, it uses the, the, the sites and how our traditions have interpreted the Exodus. This is how you get it. This is where you get a division of all those itinerary sites. There are various constant places in this investigation. One is Egypt. One is Philistia, which is next to the Shephelah up the coast. Another is the Negev, Moab, Edom, and Canaan. Those are fixed sites, which everybody knew at that time what they were and where they're located. So whenever the biblical authors would refer to a particular place, 
and they say it's next to such and such, like it's next, it's in the Negev, then that's where it goes. If they say it's next to Egypt, that's where it goes. This is what the traditional interpretation is. Okay? Now, that is going to come back to us. But <clears throat> the idea between this, this notion that I was looking at was this. Whether the stories are fictional or whether they're absolute fact, it doesn't matter. How many of you are familiar with Lord of the Rings? Almost anybody? Okay, good. Because it helps if everybody is. Um, if the author, if Tolkien were to take in every single volume that he wrote and change the location of Mordor or change the location of Hobbiton, how would you be able to follow the story? You couldn't. So even in fiction, the, the author has to present a, a reasonable geography that makes sense if you're, writing, if you're writing just one book. Same thing is if it's nonfiction. If I were to divide this room into, you're going to talk about Benedict Arnold from a British perspective, you're going to talk about Benedict Arnold from a colonial perspective, okay? you're not going to come up with the same story. But if I ask you to write where the war started, you're going to say Concord and Lexington, and you're going to say Concord and Lexington, and you're going to identify Concord and Lexington as being in Massachusetts, not in Georgia. Okay? So that was the premise that I was going from with this story, that if they were identifying or talking about these sites that they knew, they're going to locate them in the same places, no matter who they are, no matter what their politics were, no matter what their religious view was, whether they were prophets or, or some kind of other writer, a poet, or whatever. They're going to do it that way. And as I said, there were 70 sites that I ended up looking at, and I wanted to go over four that are representative, that are fairly positive in our heads. Now, this is supposed to be Hebrew. It is Hebrew in the original, but if the program, like my little netbook, doesn't have Hebrew font in it, it doesn't reproduce it. But it's not important. This is, the first one is Goshen. Okay, and these are two representative examples of what, where Goshen is. We always think of Goshen as the Nile Delta, right up in that fertile ground, and even archaeologists say this is Goshen. When we listen to this, look at this, in Genesis 46 it says, You shall say your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our ancestors, in order that you may settle in the land of Goshen, because all shepherds are abhorrent to the Egyptians. Goshen is not in Egypt. The Egyptians did not want them to settle near them. That's what the author is saying. So Goshen is outside. And then in Joshua, Joshua took all the land of the hill country. Hill country is the mountainous country of Israel. Just think of Israel today. And all the Negev in the south, the land of Goshen, and the lowland, which is in the north, and the Arava. With Arava in, if you know what the Arava is today, it's a land from the Dead Sea down to a lot. Not in the Bible. 100% of the time, the Arava in the biblical text is the land between the Galilee and the Dead Sea, the Jordan River Valley. So where's Goshen? Goshen is in that area. It's in that central, south-central part of Canaan, of Israel of today. That's where it is, and the Bible is consistent in identifying it there. So that's where it has to be located, no matter what our tradition says about the Nile Delta. Sukkot is the first place that they visit or they leave from, they leave from Sukkot, or they go to Sukkot first. But in Genesis 33, talking about Jacob, he's returning 
from his, his lovely time up with his uncle. And Jacob journeyed to Sukkot and built himself a house and made booths for the cattle. Therefore, the place is called Sukkot. Well, this Sukkot, the general area he stopped traveling in, is the Jordan River Valley. He's not down in Egypt. And then in Joshua, Joshua has a lot of geographical references because that's what Joshua and Judges are dealing with. So, and think of these places. In the valley of Beth Haram, Bet Nimrah, Sukkot, and Saphon. He's including, the author's including that there. The rest of the kingdom of Sihon, of Heshbon, the Jordan, and its banks as far as the lower end of the Sea of Kinneret, eastward beyond the Jordan. That's the Jordan River Valley in the north. That's where Sukkot is. It has nothing to do, at least as far as the biblical authors are saying, nothing to do with Egypt, because it is never identified as Sukkot in the land of Egypt. It never says that. We just assume it because we presuppose that that's where we're coming from. Mount Sinai and Yamsuf, these are two critical spots. And Mount Sinai, first of all, you have to understand Seir, and I'll read it as in the first one, Seir is a, a synonym for, for, for Edom. Edom is Jacob's brother Esau, south to the southwest, southeast and south of the Dead Sea. In Judges, Adonai, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens poured, the clouds indeed poured water, the mountains quaked before Adonai, the one of Sinai, before Adonai, the God of Israel. Where's Sinai? It's in Edom. It's somewhere southeast of the Dead Sea. That's not hooking on to anybody's particular archaeological notions. It's just that's where the text is identifying it. That's in Judges. It's also in Deuteronomy. And when they talk about traveling to Sinai, they're traveling into a dome. It's not in the, the Sinai Peninsula is never mentioned in the biblical text. The Red Sea is never mentioned in the biblical text. The only reference to the sea that they cross is Yom Suf, which is often translated as Sea of Reeds, but it doesn't matter because the question is, where is it? And the consistent location is right below this, Yom Suf. I will set your, if you imagine this, I will set your borders, this is like a, a, a coordinate crossing, okay? Set your borders from Yom Suf to the Sea of the Philistines, that's the Mediterranean, and from the wilderness to the Euphrates, which is dreaming, for I will hand over to you the inhabitants of the land. So if you have Yom Suf, you have the Sea of the Philistines, you have the wilderness and, do it your way, wilderness and the Euphrates, the Sea of the Philistines, Yom Suf is down here. Egypt is way over there. So where is it? And in 1 Kings 9.26, we know exactly where it is. And this is the best example of several. King Solomon built a fleet of ships at Etzion Gever, which is near a lot on the shore of Yom Suf in the land of Edom. What is the sea of the crossing? It's the Gulf of Eilat. That's what Yom Suf is. And we have... This is called Sinai Waterways. It is the way that the Greek authors, the Roman authors, everybody non-Jewish non or non-Israelite describe this area. If you see where Elana is, up on the upper right, I hope this works. Yeah. Right there. Elana is the Greek word for a lot. Okay? The Leonites Gulf is this, the Gulf of a lot. Okay? That's what that is. And a political side the Gulf of Aqaba is not a correct representation of this body of water. It has been called the Gulf of Eilat for at least 25, 2600 years, long before Aqaba was attached to it. 
So shouldn't you know? I, I a long time ago got used to saying Gulf of Aylan. But anyway, when you look at the biblical text, these are the scriptural waterways. This is the tongue. Whoops, the tongue of the Sea of Egypt. It is never called the Red Sea, but that's what it is today. This is the tongue of Yamsuf or Yamsuf, and that is the Gulf of Eilat. And the Red Sea that we know today is down here. But the, the Yamsuf, that's the Sea of the Crossing. That's where they crossed. Yamsuf cannot be identified in the Bible with anything up in here at all. It's just never located there. And, and it's just really kind of fascinating. But one of the fun things to look at is Exodus 15. Exodus 15, which you can't see, is a, but I, I, I urge you to look at it. It has three very fascinating verses in it. Verse 4, 14, and 15. This is Miriam's song, sometimes called the Song of Moses. And I want you to think about where this song is being recited According to the tradition, they cross the sea over in Egypt, come out, and they sing this song as the Egyptians are drowning or having already drowned. This takes place in verse 4. It says, Pharaoh's chariots and his army he cast into the sea. His picked officers were sunk in Yom Suf. They were sunk in the Gulf of Eilat. It is not the Red Sea. It's Yom Suf. And thing that's interesting is that Egypt is never mentioned in this song. Pharaoh is, but not a named Pharaoh. And Pharaoh and Egypt are not the same thing. The two words occur over a thousand times. And yes, I looked them up. Over a thousand times in the biblical text, not once are they compared as equal like, like Louis. C'est tat c'est moi. They never say anything like that. In fact, there are several occasions where Pharaoh and Egypt are separate. They are not the same. So just because it mentions Pharaoh doesn't mean that they're talking about Egypt. It doesn't mean they're not necessarily, but it doesn't mean they are. And when you get down to verse 14 and 15, this describes who has been frightened by what has just happened. I mean, the crossing of the sea. You'd think that Egypt would be mentioned. But it says this, the peoples heard, they trembled. Pang seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom were dismayed. Trembling seized the leaders of Moab, and the inhabitants of Canaan melted away. Canaan, Moab, Philistia, and Edom. All modern times, Gaza Strip, Israel, Jordan, and southern Jordan, and maybe Saudi Arabia but southern Jordan. Where is the location of this author? If we go back, uh, do I want to go back? I'll go right here. The author, these are the areas, talking about Edom, Moab, Canaan here, and Philistia here. The author's not standing over here. The author's down here somewhere, on the eastern side. That's the geographical location of this song. And if they're talking about Yom Suf, then the author's standing right here and referring to these countries up here that have just found out they'd be in at least closer proximity to tell what happened. Now, verse 4, verse 4, I've got to go back to it because it's fun. These picked officers that it refer references here, 
those are normally, the Hebrew word is shalishav, his thirds. What in the world does that mean? Well, when you do a lot of searching, and the only, the only reasonable thing that I ever found was that people referred to this, ah, these are Pharaoh's chariot riders. His chariots. So it was the horse and the rider being thrown into the sea. Well, the chariots of Egypt had only two people on them. The chariots in Canaan and the chariots in Judah had three. This could be a specific reference, not to the chariots of Egypt, but to the chariots of Canaan, the chariots in the specific sense of Judah. Um, and what I, what I wanted to show, what I was just on a minute ago, whoops, let me get back to it. Am I going the right way? No, I'm not. Okay, this is one of the, the um, traditional routes that people propose that goes to the south down here and then back up because Mount Sinai is traditionally located down here. And um, there are other routes that go straight across. One that the biblical text says they didn't go this way because of the road to the Philistines. They didn't want to encounter the Philistines. Well, if the data, if the Exodus is dated in the 12th century, 13th century, the Philistines weren't there yet. So why is the text saying they didn't want to go by way of the Philistines? They weren't there. And but if you look at it later, at the time of Jeroboam, Philistines were all over the place here, and they were one of the dreaded enemies of Israel. But these are this includes the the sites that we're talking about, and. And it's sort of a nice intro. This slide is one I've shown you before. It has a traditional look of where the Exodus itinerary sites were located. And when we, when we think about that, we have to take into consideration, one, the fact that the biblical authors are incredibly consistent in locating the, all these sites, even when they are not talking about the Exodus, that only one site is located in two different places, which I mentioned, which is Migdol, which means a tower, and that's easily understood. Therefore, when I drew the map that showed the location of the itinerary sites, this is what the map of the Exodus looks like. And I didn't make it up. That's where the biblical authors locate these sites. Nothing is in the West. There is no connection made to Egypt in any of the sites that I found. And what's critically important about this is that the Exodus, according to this, did not come out of Egypt. And what I ended up drawing as a conclusion is, and I'm almost done, almost done, um, is that all the sites are in the east. Anyone that the biblical authors mention, they're in the east. There is no connection made to Egypt. And therefore, connecting that with Exodus 1, what I concluded was that the Jeroboam-Solomon story is the foundation of our Exodus tradition. And it is an allegory written to describe the deeply desired independence of the Israelite nation from the Judeans who enslaved them for at least 40 to 50 years and brutally treated them. What, what Rehoboam, Solomon's son, says when the, the Israelites go to the Israelite elders, just like they do to Pharaoh in Egypt, when, he go, when they go to Rehoboam to ask him 
for release from the slavery, his response, he, he takes the advice of his younger advisors, just like Pharaoh does in the Exodus story, and he says, um, my father whipped you with whips, I will whip you with scorpions, my little finger, or my thumb is, or what, what's his comment? My thumb is bigger than my father's thigh, and you know what that means. That's not just an anatomical reference to hands and legs. Okay? And he was, and he brutally treated them. And, and as a result of this, I was asked by my dissertation committee to draw, to propose a route. See, I knew I'd get to a route for the exodus sooner or later. And this is what I suggested. <laughs> and that's the best guess I could come up with, that, that the exodus represents the movement of, because prior to this, prior to David coming along and dividing the king and, and unifying Israel and Judah, the Israelites did not like that. They hated David. They hated Solomon, and they hated the Judeans for their entire existence. This was, from here to here, was Israel. David comes along, unifies these, well, he forces the unification with the Judeans, and then Solomon comes along, enslaves them, and then Israel gets their independence, and it breaks off right about here. And these guys had to go north. So they gather Kadesh Barnea, and they flee, from, they flee through the Edom and Moab area. They flee up this way, and that's the best I could do. I think that in some sense the the um, story of the spies going up from Kadesh into the north is a representation of this. But I haven't worked on that yet. Um, but anyway, that's, <clears throat> that's where I went with this. And um, <clears throat> there's more. There's more about all sorts of things, but um, I'll, I'll probably stop now. Okay. Because um, I'm losing my voice. Do you wanna wanna have any questions? Like we can have questions later, but if there are any immediate questions, we can address it right now. Yeah. Sure. Thank you very much. This is really really fascinating. I guess one of the questions: Why would the the blame be placed on the Egyptians and Pharaoh? Why would um, it would not be the responsibility would not be held against the Judeans? What would be the fear in telling the story? Well, there's a lot of that. Could you repeat the question? What's the fear in telling the story as Egypt mm -hmm. and not, not Judah? Mm -hmm. um, because the, there, there is allegory, a lot of allegory in the biblical text. And, um, for example, the book of Esther is not about Persians. It's about the Greeks. Mm -hmm. The book of Daniel is about the Greeks, not the Babylonians. And the biblical authors use allegory all the time. And oftentimes they will project it back into an earlier time because they may have been afraid. You have to remember the, the, the war that Judah and Israel fight lasts about, well, the Bible says it lasts 40 years, but I don't know. They fight a war, and, and Sheshank, the, the Egyptian pharaoh, brings his army up into, into Israel and Judah to make sure that the trade routes are still open. And Egypt still had a lot of power at that time. And... And so they may have not wanted to anger Egypt. You have to remember as well, Solomon was in the hip pocket of the Egyptians. Jeroboam, when he fleed, he, remember, Moses flees and goes to Midian. Jeroboam flees and goes to Egypt and marries Pharaoh's daughter. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's a connection with Egypt in both, in both houses. And I think they probably wanted to write it back in, into an earlier time. And, and one of the things that sort of comes out of this is the name Moses people bend over backwards and practically kill themselves to make sure that his name is understood as an Egyptian name. 
The problem is within Exodus 1, it's not a problem for me, that there is an exact reference to what he would be called if it were an Egyptian name, and it's not Moshe, it's Moses, because Ramses is the city they're building, and you've got the transliteration of Mem Samek Samek right there, and then he's, he's called Moshe, which means, which means to draw out. And people say, well, he's, he's not, you know, he, he was drawn out of the water. No, 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 to draw out. A participle in, in biblical Hebrew is the one who is drawing out. So Jeroboam would be named the one who is drawing out, and which means that, that Moses is totally fictional, which is something I have to deal with as a rabbi, but I don't mind it. <laughs> does that help? Yes, okay. it does. No, it's, so, um, we'll, we'll, uh, Why don't we do questions? We can just do one, just one. What, well, maybe we'll do it later. We could do questions later. Sure. Okay, I can think about this. Okay, okay. well, thank, thank you, you very much. And then we're going to just do a little uh, change. Yeah.